Sunday mornings, we're studying the book of 2 Peter. <clears throat> if you're with us this morning and you don't have a Bible, there are men coming up the aisles right now with lots of Bibles. If you just wave to them and get their attention, they'll get a Bible into your hands, and that way you can listen to the teaching this morning, but also uh, follow along with your own eyes in the passage, and that gives it the double the impact in our lives. And, and then, of course, if you don't own a Bible, well, you do now. That's a gift from the Lord to you, and take it home and read it daily and watch what God does through your life as a result. Second Peter chapter 2, verse 1, Peter, inspired by the Holy Spirit, but there were also false prophets among the people, even as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the Lord who bought them, and bring on themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their destructive ways, because of whom the way of truth will be blasphemed. By covetousness, they will exploit you with deceptive words. For a long time, their judgment has not been idle, and their destruction does not slumber. Let's pray together. Thank you, Lord, for your word. We thank you for all that it accomplishes within our lives. And we pray as we do so often, Lord, for all that is bound up in these three verses as we study them that is an important part of our relationship with you and our service to you, the understanding of the truth that is found here. Lord, we acknowledge there's great truth here, important truth, and we pray that by your Holy Spirit, you would open it up to us, Lord, and give it a living daily part in each one of our lives. Thank you for your word, all of it. And we thank you for the privilege of being able to not only study it, but under the direction and of your Holy Spirit, the great teacher. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. I don't know about you, but I suspect you're an awful lot like me. Um, all my life, I have hated shots. I'm a little, a little more manly about it these days, but not much better than what I was as a child. I hated shots. I remember one time my mom, <clears throat> my twin brother and I must have been no older than eight years old, and she had told us we had a doctor's appointment in Napa, California. I, the building is etched in my memory. The, where we parked the car is etched in my memory. I forget everything else in life, but certain things you remember, traumatic things, remember. So this was just supposed to be a doctor's visit. And then we got into the room, and it became apparent they were going to give us a shot. Well, I shot out of that, out of that clinic down the hallway, out the doors, and into our old black Chevy that was parked in front of that doctor's office, literally a half step ahead of my mother and the nurse, I got in the door. It was like a movie. I got in the door, I got the door slammed, and I got both buttons down before they got to the handles. <laughs> so I was locked in the car. They were not going to give me a shot of anything. 
And then they talked me down from my anxiety. It wasn't going to be an actual shot. It was going to be just a vaccine. They would just prick the skin and give me candy after or something, you know, these adults. <laughs> so I unlocked the door, and they got me inside, and, and they gave me the vaccine. I'm not much better about shots, even in adult life. I always turn the other way. I mean, they have to do it. I don't cry or anything. I don't whimper. I come close when they draw blood. They get that. You know, you know when someone really knows how to do it and when they don't, don't you? I said, man, this is, did you, did you just, is this your first day? <laughs> you know, and they're, like, they're like pulling that. You know, you're not supposed to like wag it in there. That's, that's, and they draw the blood, I always turn away. And most of them, aren't really, I mean, those of you who have experience, they're fabulous in what they do. But I don't like shots and I don't like needles. And of course, they have, the, uh, the reason they give us, oftentimes give us shots, so they give us an inoculation is in order to introduce an antigen into our system with vaccines and that kind of thing, an inoculation. So they take uh, some antigen, they introduce it into our body, something that is of a threat to us potentially in a benign form, and then our body recognizes it as something foreign and our immune system goes to work and then develops an antibody for it so that if we ever do contract that disease, the body's already familiar with it, knows how to produce the antibody, and off we go. So most of us, at least in my generation, we had uh, the vaccines for chicken pox or smallpox. Uh, even today, they didn't have it so much when I was a kid, but today, in the same kind of a vein, we have flu shots today where it's introduced, the body begins to develop the, uh, their immune system, the uh, antibody to it, in case you get that particular version of the flu. And this particular passage, and really not just these three verses that we're looking at, but really all the way through 2 Peter chapter 2, it's God, God is really giving us a shot. He's giving us a, an immunization through the apostle Peter. And there's some passages that we turn to the Bible, and uh, they just give us the warm fuzzies. They're just great. They're wonderful to preach, and they're fabulous, the impact that they have upon our lives. And those passages that are like that in our lives, we tend to commit them to memory because of what they mean to us. I doubt there's a Christian in this room. I doubt there's a Christian in this whole um, uh, city of Modesto that has committed Second Peter verses 1 through 3 to memory because it's a shot. It's an inoculation. And what Peter is doing here in this is he's writing to Christians who are facing tremendous opposition from without, from the culture that they live in, the society that they live in. They're being persecuted by the Roman Empire, by the culture, by the people, and they're being persecuted simply for having a relationship with Jesus Christ. And so there is that opposition that comes against us from without, and he's been addressing that in the first chapter of Second Peter. But it's not the only opposition that we face, and it's not the most dangerous opposition that we face as Christians, because now he turns his attention to the opposition that comes against us from within professing Christianity, false teachers that come into our midst and claim to be Christian, give the appearance of being Christian, but are not. 
and are of an even greater danger to our faith and our relationship to Jesus Christ than the unsaved world that opposes us from without because the stakes are so high as it relates to false doctrine and false teaching. Eternal life is in the balance related to what we believe spiritually and what we hold on to spiritually. And so this morning, this passage and really this chapter, it's going to be a three-part inoculation, one, two, three phases. But just today, the first three verses, it is Peter endeavoring to immunize us as Christians so that if we ever come into contact with this kind of spiritual disease or this kind of uh, spiritual influence, we will recognize it, our spirit will recognize it immediately for the danger that it is, and we've already been prepared for it so that we don't become a victim of it. Now this, sometimes, and it's the older I get, the more I just, I don't want to even talk about this kind of stuff. Um, when I was a younger pastor, I'd love to talk about it all of the time. But the older I get, you know, God is so great, He's so beautiful, He's so faithful as we've sung. This life is so indescribably fabulous that I just tend to want to roll there and just talk about those kind of things because they mean so much to me. And it's almost at this point in my Christian life that I'm like forced to address these kind of, of subject matter. But it's necessary and so we do this morning. And, and uh, though I wish I, I didn't have to do it, and sometimes we wish that we didn't have to sometimes hear it, but we do because the world really is a, a spiritual minefield. Paul wrote, in, inspired by the Holy Spirit, 1 Timothy chapter 4, concerning all of this, he said, Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons. Behind all false doctrine is a demonic realm. Jesus warned at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, near the end of it, he said, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. And so this morning we want to look at the facts that Peter wants us to know concerning false teachers, including his description of them uh, one at a time so that we can properly identify them and, and avoid being spiritually seduced by them ourselves. In verse 1, he says, even as there will be false teachers among you. And here he speaks just most simply of all of the existence of false teachers and false prophets around God's people. Anywhere there is a work of the Holy Spirit, you're going to have false prophets and false teachers who come alongside it to either discredit it or to confuse the issue. No work of the Holy Spirit goes on without the devil attempting to uh, come against it and combat it in some way. So everywhere, all through church history and, and in the Old Testament and, and into this day, false teachers have been around God's people, and they are around today. And so as a bare minimum, every single Christian needs to realize that every teacher who claims to speak for God does not speak for God. Every teacher who stands behind a pulpit like this 
does not necessarily speak for God. Not every uh, teacher or preacher who teaches with a Bible in their hand is necessarily speaking for God, not doing it out of a motive of, of making God's message accurately known to the audience. And we need to know that as Christians. Because oftentimes, we are, we are nice people. I won't say we are naive people. I won't say we are gullible people. But we obey the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives and the Scriptures that tell us to believe all things, to believe what is best, to believe the best, to see the best in other people. And so often, all someone has to do is say, I'm a Christian Boom, we lower our guard and we assume that automatically we're dealing with a Christian and everything that they're saying is the truth. Or if someone opens up a Bible, that we say, well, not, not only are they a Christian, but they've opened up a Bible, so they must love the Lord the same way I love the Lord, and what they're saying to me must be tr trustworthy. But that isn't necessarily always true. Most of the time is probably true, but it isn't always true. And we need to realize that. When we listen to anyone teach the Bible, and that includes me, that's just the beginning. After we listen to what the person is saying, we're then to test what is being said by the revelation of Scripture. Is that accurate in the light of the Word of God? And only as we're confident of that, that I recognize that to be a biblical truth, then do I embrace that truth and allow it to become a part of my life and my relationship with God. Peter, uh, Paul wrote to the church at Thessalonica, and he said, test all things, how? By the Word of God, and then hold fast to what is good. Go ahead and embrace it after we recognize that it matches the standard of God's Word. Now, sometimes people get frustrated with people like me, or maybe not just me as a pastor, but pastors in general, where we will take and maybe dealing with a passage like this, 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, and we will bring the truth out related to that passage, and then we will cross-reference another passage of the Bible that addresses the same thing in order to give clarity to the truth. And it isn't just, um, you know, to waste time or to be redundant. There's the recognition on my part and on the part of others that I'm declaring truth to somebody. And in order for them to accept that truth and embrace that truth, they need to recognize that it is a biblical truth. So sure, it's taught right here, but then the Holy Spirit brings the same truth out over here. And then if you want to pull the trump card out, then you, you say, and Jesus himself taught the very same thing, and you quote Jesus' teaching on the issue. What happens in your heart when you hear a truth that's spoken and then a passage is given that declares that Jesus taught the very same thing, it's read to you, we all of a sudden release into the truth. We know this truth is safe to believe. And so we embrace it because it comes from the highest authority of all, from Jesus himself. And so it allows us then to it recognize truth for the truth that it is and then embrace it the way that God wants us to. Now, all of this is important because, as we're going to see shortly, the 
Um, many people don't do that. They don't test in that way, and they end up believing all kinds of false doctrine and following all kinds of false teachers. It's fascinating. There's a particular cult. It's a non-Christian uh, cult. It claims to be Christian, but it isn't Christian, so it's a cult. And I'll identify it later on in the sermon. But there's a particular uh, non-Christian cult that uh, it is estimated that 80% of their uh, conversions into that institution come from people who have a Bible background, a Christian background. I don't say that they're Christians. I don't say that they know their Bibles well. But they should know their Bibles well enough to know, certainly about this cult, that I'm walking into something that is just spiritually crazy and to recognize that. So it lets us know that when Peter speaks about these things, he's not just wasting his time. There's a lot of people who should know better that get pulled into all manner of error, and, and, and it's unnecessary. You notice, uh, we notice the phrase, among you, in verse 1. In other words, these false teachers like to circulate among God's people. So they don't believe in the simple truths of the Bible. Uh, they don't teach the simple truths of the Bible, but they still want to be identified as Christian for the simple reason that it gives them a legitimacy that they wouldn't otherwise have. I mean, through the years, I look at these different non-Christian cults that are clearly not Christian at all, and I've thought to myself, why do they pretend to be Christians when in fact they aren't? Why not just be honest and go out and say, I don't believe in Christianity, I don't believe in the foundations of Christianity, this is my own religion, and uh, make up the religion of this is what I think about God church, and it's a very long sign to put on a church, but to put it up there and see if you can attract anybody to come to it. But they know no one will come to it. No one would come to this. Listen, come every week. I'm going to get up here and give you my spiel on life and spirituality. Who's going to come to that? And you can go online and do that all week long if you want. And so they recognize nobody will come to listen to that. But I ask, why don't they do that? Why do they work so hard to associate themselves with genuine Christianity? And again, they attach to Christianity in order to gain a legitimacy in people's eyes that they don't deserve and that they wouldn't otherwise have. If, if they came along and declared that they are Christians and that they uh, love Jesus and they believe in God and in the Bible, they know that people will then drop their guard and then listen to them when otherwise they wouldn't. I remember 30-plus years ago, I was playing City League basketball, and there was a guy on our team who... Um, I just enjoyed him a lot. He was a great basketball player. And one time he invited me to a, a business opportunity meeting at his house. And so I went to his house, and, uh, and it ended up uh, I had been invited to an Amway meeting. And um, the meeting was hosted there in his home, and a very, very successful Amway um, salesperson or representative, he was making all kinds of money and all kinds of, he'd done a great job within that uh, business model. And so he was up kind of giving the, uh, the pitch related to things and why all of us ought to get involved in it and, and all. And in the course of his presentation, he declared 
He, he said, now, there are only two companies in the entire United States that shared a particular positive business trait, and he said, that is Amway and the DuPont Corporation. Now, at that time, there was a world of difference between the size and the influence of Amway and the DuPont Corporation. At that time, the DuPont Corporation's name was like gold. It was an amazing kind of uh, corporation. And uh, so he drops both of the names uh, together. And, and even though there's a great difference between the size and the influence of Amway and DuPont, but he wanted to drop the DuPont name in order to give us, uh, to get us to ascribe the positive characteristics of DuPont to Amway, to elevate the stature of Amway in our minds uh, to the level of DuPont. And, and I'm not saying there's anything wrong with Amway. Are you being involved in Amway or God bless Amway? I don't know, you know. There's nothing, I'm not picking on Amway. And I'm not even saying that this gentleman represents typically how they make their presentation. But I sat there and I listened. I said, this is tricky what he's trying to do here. He is trying to gain an association with something greater and even more trusted and highly esteemed in our culture so that we will then carry those traits over into something that is currently lesser in people's minds. And that whole kind of thing goes on all over in life, and it goes on all over in business, and it's the same kind of thing that false teachers attempt to use to their own advantage. They like to attach to something bigger in order to gain a legitimacy that they would never otherwise have. We notice also in verse 1 that they like to work secretly. They're not uh, that easy to spot. And the reason that they're not that easy to spot is because they hide their identities and their true identities and their intentions. Again, Jesus warned concerning false teachers. He said, outwardly, they look like little lambs. I mean, just as cute as can be. They look like sheep. They look like Christians. But inwardly, they're ravenous wolves. You can't have a, a more stark difference than a lamb and a ravenous wolf. So the capacity for these people to appear as one thing and be something unbelievable, di believably different inside, Peter is warning and Jesus is warning that it's true. And that's part of what it makes so difficult to spot them and why they're so effective. They're not open and honest about what they are about. They pretend to be one thing, but they are something else entirely. So they come into a church so often, church like this or any church, and they pretend to kind of have a kindred spirit with the whole thing that's going on, and, but then they start to work the edges of the body, and, the, and they start to talk with people and say, I, I can tell you really have a hunger for the deep things of God. And you know, this is a fine church. I mean, that pastoral staff, they they teach pretty good and all, but you're never going to learn the deep things of God through their teaching. But we get into the deep things of God in this little Bible study that we have over in our home, and we want to invite you to come because we know you're, you're a deeper seeker after things of God than the average person. And so the invitation goes out. We're flattered related to all of that. And... and uh, and so a body gets worked in that way. I remember years ago, uh, one time a young couple started attending 
the church from a church background that <clears throat> definitely held to what I would consider to be very serious false doctrine. Nicest people you'd ever want to meet. What kids? Wow! Could you raise my kids? I mean, just fabulous. And, and so they came in and they started to work that thing. And they started to invite people to their particular home within the body here to the, to the home and, and to teach them these things with the idea of, of indoctrinating them into their false doctrine. Of course, uh, I got wind of it. We do get wind of it sooner or later as pastors simply because the Holy Spirit is going to out people that do this kind of stuff sooner or later. And so I was forced to confront them. And I asked them, I said, why do you want to come into this church and teach this doctrine why not just stay in the church you learned it in or one of the many churches that hold to that doctrine? And so, oh, we love this church. There's a spirit and, and an openness and a, and a freshness about this church that isn't in our, our dying old church. And I told him, I said, don't you realize that your old church is dying because of your false doctrine that you want to bring here. The false doctrine is so grievous to the Holy Spirit that he can't add his amen or his witness to it. And because of that, there's no witness to the Holy Spirit. But you want to bring that same doctrine in here, which will, it, that church that you've left is a product of the false doctrine. You will do it here, force the Holy Spirit off of this place, and you'll be forced to move on to the next thing. And despite my considerable attempts and knowledgeable attempts to move them from the false doctrine, they wouldn't move, and so I asked them not to come back to this church. But just secret stuff, not being honest about what they are, really can make it harder to identify them. I had a, a friend in high school who was a member of a Christian cult, and uh, this group would be, always be having dances and events and parties and these kind of things. And I mean, they did a great job on all this stuff in order to entice teenagers and high schoolers into, this, uh, into all of these events. There's nothing religious about the events. It was just to get them a little bit closer to the church and so-called church and and, uh, and so people would come, and they'd come to these events, and then pretty soon they're uh, in the youth group, and, and they would come to the youth group for a period of months, and there was this whole system by which a young person was indoctrinated in this particular religious system. They would, you would never walk into it and say, this is what we believe, because if they told you right on, you'd be get Marty Feldman eyes as big as this, and you'd run for the nearest exit. But they would deliberately bring you in, and only after a period of weeks and months when you had begun to establish meaningful relationships with other people, um, you realized how nice the people are uh, in this particular religious system, and they're very, very nice, by the way. And, and then after they've done a bunch of things for you, and only then did they begin to reveal what their true doctrine and their true purpose was. And now, in order for me to leave this system, now i got to deal with guilt because I've invested this far. They have been so nice to me, et cetera, et cetera, and now they've got me. 
And the whole thing is a system by which they realize if a person knew what we believe totally in the first 60 minutes, no one would ever become a part of this church. But if we do it this way, this secretive way, then we can get them. And they're very, very, uh, very, very effective. And in fact, it's the same religious system that I was talking about with the 80% Christians being converted over. Uh, not Christians, but those that have a background in the Bible or Christianity converted over uh, into it. And there was all of that secrecy by design. Jesus was always completely upfront about who he was and who he is to this day. when When I go up and I'm going to talk to somebody and witness to them about Christ, and and all, they know I'm witnessing to them about Christ. I don't go up to them and say, "Hey, listen, I got a raffle here, and we're gonna you can maybe win a Camaro and this whole thing and and the whole deal." I'm not gonna do that. So, and because Jesus. He comes on the scene. He's as straightforward as you can be. The first word out of his mouth, first word of his public ministry, repent. That's known as clarity. Repentance is not a bad word, by the way. It means to have a change of mind about the direction I'm going in life. And when we finally wake up to the fact that I am going in the wrong direction in life, repent becomes a wonderful word, a word that we embrace. Jesus declared repent. Very clear on how a person became one of his followers as his disciples, how a person was born again. John 3, 16, for God so loved the world, Jesus said, that's you, that he gave his only begotten son, that's Jesus, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And, and then Jesus, without apology, any secret thing, no rings, <clears throat> He then spoke openly about what was necessary to become one of his followers, the price we will pay to follow him, to go where he goes in this world. He said, if any man wants to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. That's the cost. To go where I go in this world, to live the life that I live in this world, that's the commitment that's required. And then he leaves a person to count the cost on whether they're willing to do that. But nobody had to guess about whether they were getting the full picture, half the picture, getting the secret treatment or anything. And because Jesus is so upfront and non-secretive, as his disciples ought to be the same thing. I think that... And then uh, number four... Thankfully, also in verse 1, Peter tells us how to identify these false teachers despite their considerable attempts at secrecy. And we are able to identify them by the fact that they teach or they advocate destructive heresies. So again, you can't always know by the outward appearance on things. They don't, you know, a false teacher doesn't have some odd quirk like a false teacher tick. Honey, did you see that? That's the false teacher tick. We've got to get out of here. That would make it really easy. But they can be recognized almost as easy based upon what they teach, and what they teach, Peter says, are destructive heresies. The word heresy means to choose, and it carries the meaning of to separate or to divide. In other words, a heretic is a person, their goal is to try to get you to split from the clear teaching of the Bible and then adopt their teaching 
that's contrary to the revelation of Scripture. And so, not only are they, do they have heresies, but then he says they're destructive heresies, and the word destructive in the original language means to destroy fully. So, what Peter is referring to here are teachers that are contrary to the teaching of the Bible, and if those teachings were adopted by all Christians, it would mean the destruction of biblical Christianity. So, we're talking about very, very serious error here. And I want to, I want to say this, be clear on this because, and to mention what he's not talking about here. He isn't saying that good, honest, sincere Christians who know the Bible well and love the Bible, that we might, that we will never have legitimately differing views on subjects that are non-essentials to the faith. For example, um, how the gifts of the Holy Spirit are to operate in the local church or in a church service like this. There's lots of ways that churches go about that kind of thing, and people have their own convictions, and there's diversity even within the teaching of… The, the Bible is very clear, but there's diversity in, in terms of how it, it can be practiced. There's, there is… Uh, we can have different views related to a subject like, do I, when I die as a Christian, do I receive my new body immediately? Or am I some kind of a spirit being still in the presence of the Lord, but I receive my new body at the time of the rapture? You have very, very wonderful Christians who hold either of those views, and they disagree with one another, but it's not a destructive heresy at all. Or even the timing of the rapture. Some believe in a pre-trib or a mid-trib or a post-trib. So, and in other words, a person isn't a heretic because they hold a different position on a non-essential doctrine than you do. A person can be poorly taught and still be a Christian. What is being said here? is that there, here is error that is so serious that if we were to, it were adopted by all Christians, Christianity would cease to be Christianity. And it is a denial of the doctrines that make Christianity Christianity. And significantly, Peter mentions, makes mention of denying the Lord who bought them, speaking of Jesus himself. In other words, among other things, a heretic is a person who denies what the Bible declares to be true of Jesus. Examples of it. They deny his deity, the fact that he is the Son of God and he is God the Son. They deny his virgin birth. They deny his resurrection. And you may sit here this morning as a Christian in a wonderful kind of cocoon and assume that all of professing Christianity or all, everything that calls itself Christian absolutely believes these things, but it isn't true. You have entire denominations that call themselves Christians in the United States of America where you have upwards of 70% of them that don't even believe the three things that I've talked about right here. They deny those things concerning Christ. 
So ignorance is bliss. It's wonderful to live in a place where we look and we think everybody believes the way that I do and knows the Bible and these kind of things or whatever we might think about ourselves. But this is a really big problem within professing Christianity. Not true Christianity, but professing Christianity. They deny his miracles. They deny his teaching. They deny him to be the only way of salvation, that he is the only way to heaven. As Jesus said, I am the way, the singular, the way, the truth, the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. And they deny that. Or they deny, they teach that there's no need for salvation. Or they teach that all paths and religions lead to heaven. They teach that a person can get to heaven on the basis of their own good works rather than on the basis of faith in Jesus' finished payment upon the cross for the forgiveness of our sins. If any teacher says that there's another way to heaven than through faith in Jesus, then they're a false teacher. And anyone who says that salvation is on the basis of putting my faith in Jesus and anything is a false teacher. Because God has gone to great lengths to provide us with a salvation that is completely a free gift. And it's received on the basis of faith. It it is not of works, lest any man should boast, Paul wrote. And so if I come and I say, or any religious system says, that we are saved on the basis of trusting in Jesus and doing anything, I am saying that what he did on the cross was not enough, that it needs to be supplemented, that it needs to be added to. Or if a person says, I can get into heaven on the basis of my own works, it is to say that he died on the cross unnecessarily. He wasted his time. That chapter in human history God in his ignorance and sending his son and the ignorance of the son and coming, how misguided. It's not needed at all. We can simply work our way into heaven. It is about the greatest affront that a person can make to God, the greatest blasphemy that a person can speak against God and his son is to say that I have something that I can add or needs to be added to the free salvation that he has provided. Well... What are the examples of some of this in in our day? There's a difference between a non-Christian religion and a a non-Christian cult. And a non-Christian religion is a religion that doesn't even claim to be Christian. And they're up, up, at least they're that upfront about things. We're our own thing. We do our own thing. we we, We do not claim to be Christian at all. Islam is one of those religions. Hinduism is one of those religions. Buddhism is one of those religions. And right on down the list. A non-Christian cult, so you understand how I define it. A non-Christian cult is a religious system that claims to be Christian, but is not. It denies the foundational, fundamental doctrines of Christianity, the very things that make Christianity, Christianity. For example, Mormonism, where they believe that Jesus was created as a spirit child and is the elder brother of all men and spirit beings and and that believers are resurrected by grace, but they're saved 
that is exalted to Godhood by works and that there is no eternal life without Mormon membership. So it's a work-based salvation in that religious system. Probably after Mormonism, the next best-known non-Christian cult would be Jehovah Witnesses, who believe Jesus is not God but was Michael the archangel before living on the earth, and that one has to be baptized as a Jehovah Witness to be saved, and that most followers have to earn everlasting life by their door-to-door work. And so that'll, that'll keep you going door-to-door a lot when it's a work-based salvation and religion. Christian science, if there's ever been the most misnamed thing in all of history, it's this, because it's not Christian and it's not science. But they believed Jesus was not God, but a man who displayed the Christ idea, and that humanity is already eternally saved, and that sin, evil, sickness, and death are simply not real. So they teach another salvation. Now let me shift gears just a little bit and talk about Roman Catholicism and a little bit about some aspects of Protestantism. Roman Catholicism is defined not by an individual priest or an individual Roman Catholic, but as defined by the doctrine of the church. It teaches that a person is saved through faith in Jesus alone as a free gift from God, but on the basis of faith but on the basis of faith in Jesus and the keeping of the sacraments. So you take a a priest, you take a Roman Catholic who really knows church doctrine, and it can take some time, and you bring them down on this issue of salvation, and they will be forced to confess to you that salvation isn't based solely upon faith in Christ, but it is based upon faith in Christ and the keeping of the sacraments. Not faith in Christ for salvation and then keeping the sacraments in response to having already been saved. That's not the position of Roman Catholicism. But that you are saved on the basis of faith in Christ and keeping the sacraments. Works. It's works. It is to communicate that we have something to add to that cross. And who, as we will consider on Friday, can look at that Savior on that cross and think that any of us have anything to add to what he did there. It is a very serious business to add works to salvation. Now, nobody leave. Some of you are sitting there thinking, oh, this is why this church never grows. Everybody has a right to hear the truth. And one of the most unreached parts of the mission field in the United States of America is Roman Catholicism, who do not understand the teaching of their church, and worse, do not understand the teaching of the Bible. Now, let me say this. There are so many people who are born again 
in Roman Catholicism. The first spirit-filled Christian I ever ran into in my life was a Catholic priest at St. Thomas Aquinas in Napa, California. It was my first exposure to a torrent of living water coming out of a person's innermost being, as Jesus spoke about in John chapter, se- John chapter 7. But those who are saved and born-again Christians within Roman Catholicism are saved not because of Catholic doctrine, but in spite of Roman Catholic doctrine. has nothing to do with people, nothing to do with personalities, nothing to do with how sacrificial individual people are or how sincere they are. I'm talking about an official doctrine of an institution. And so there are people that are saved in there, but not because of the doctrine of the church, but in spite of it. Let me tell you something. I catch more heat through the years talking about Roman Catholicism, which I rarely talk about, than all of the other subjects all put together. By far, bar none. And sometimes, and if you sit here today and you see a fellow business owner or something in the congregation, you think that they believe everything that I believe because I'm saying it, they'll speak for themselves. I'm speaking for myself today and, and the Word of God. But to me, everybody has a right to hear the truth. Everybody has a right to know the way of salvation as Jesus taught it. Because eternity hangs in the balance. I would rather speak on this issue and this church go back down to 25 people like it was at the very beginning, but be a place where someone who has invested their entire life in Roman Catholicism and yet are not born again and about to enter into eternity without having put their faith in Christ. You give me the one or you give me the other. It's a very easy choice for me. And I can be foolish in this regard. I know how to preach in a way that avoids what's hard. I know how to preach to make a church grow. I can do all of those things in terms of just learned behavior. But I did not get saved into this except to declare truth to people who have a right to hear it, and then what they do with that is their own business. But they have a right to hear. Are you born again? Do you know what that phrase means? Jesus said, unless a man be born again, he cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. Why would, why would I be kept in darkness in a religious system, and I'm not just talking about them, but all kinds of religious systems, where they don't tell me the need to be born again and then how to be born again? And Jesus said, how again? John three sixteen. for God so loved the world, that is you, that he sent his only begotten Son into the world to pay the full and satisfying payment for the forgiveness of our sins on that cross, that whosoever, that's you and me again, 
would believe in Him or trust in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. There's something perverse and easy to manipulate about works where we want to hedge our bet and religious people and institutions take advantage of it where we look and we say, if salvation is based upon putting my faith in Christ, what harm can it do then if I add these four, five, six works to that? It dishonors the sacrifice and it's the ultimate expression of pride. We, you cannot improve on a finished salvation. You can only mar a finished salvation. And on the very cross that bought us our salvation, the Savior who purchased that salvation for us declared of His salvation, it is finished. He did not say it is begun, and then now man needs to bring his human effort alongside of it to bring it to its completion. Because if salvation were based upon our works, we would not know a sure foundation because we are unstable people. He saved us the only way that we can be saved. So often people get pulled into this whole works thing. I haven't got to the Protestants yet. Hold your breath but we get pulled into this whole works thing, so often people do, because they love God. And if I can put my faith in Christ and then do these things to prove, you know, my love for Him and to honor Him, you cannot honor the Father more than to just put your trust in the Savior that He sent into the world at great expense to Himself for your salvation. That and that alone blesses His heart and honors the God that you want to love and you want to honor. That's how we honor Him, not by adding anything else to it. Now, you take liberal Protestantism or Protestantism that's moved away from what the Bible teaches and, and the authority of the Scriptures, what it teaches about Jesus' deity, about all of these things concerning Him. And then what do they do? They keep the Christian facade, but you go into the average one of those churches and you ask that person, why do they believe they're going to end up in heaven one day? And here's the answer. Because I'm a good person. You are not a good person. <laughs> You want to know how good of a person we are? Look at that cross. That's the price that had to be paid for the forgiveness of our sins, the expression of the wickedness of our heart. And so, again, I'm going to get into heaven on the basis of my own works. We do not get into heaven on the basis of our own works. And yet people are kept continually in the dark related to all of this. Well, Peter says that swift destruction or judgment is going to come upon them. So, in other words, don't follow them. And if you think that Jesus was any less clear on this than Peter, we should think again. In Matthew chapter 18, Jesus said of those that teach these false doctrines, He said, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in Me to sin, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe to the world because of offenses 
for offenses must come, but woe to that man by whom the offense comes. And that is Jesus' warning to anyone who would undermine the faith a person has placed in Christ and then to lead them into error. When Jesus uses the term millstone there, it's not like the Indians with a little mortar, you know, pestle and the mortar and the whole thing. This is talking about a millstone that required a donkey to turn it, to have that tied around your neck and thrown into the Mediterranean Sea or the Sea of Galilee. You have no chance of surviving, no chance of swimming with that. And Jesus didn't say, that's what will happen to those who teach these false doctrines and lead people into error. He says, it would be better that that happened to them than the judgment that awaits them. It is a big deal to speak for God. It is a big deal to claim to represent God and to claim to speak for God on the most important issue in any human being's life, and that is their eternal life. We cannot afford to be wrong on that issue. And that's why James said, be not many teachers because you're going to face the harsher judgment. I will face a very strict judgment from Jesus by virtue of the position that I hold within the body of Christ. The importance of of being correct because there's a great judgment that's going to come upon them. Notice in verse 2 that their following and their popularity, shockingly, many people will follow these prophets and these teachers and their destructive ways. In other words, don't follow any teacher or any trend in Christianity for the sole reason that it happens to be popular at the moment or it has a large following. That phrase, their destructive ways in verse 2, the Greek word means it refers to debased sexually immoral practices. And so these teachers, Peter is saying, they become immensely popular for the simple reason that they don't condemn anything. They don't label anything sin. They never call people to repentance or a faith in Christ. They take the clear writings of the Scripture, the clear condemnation of sin, and they explain them away, and they take people, and they convince them that they can live any kind of ungodly life and still consider themselves a Christian and be confident that one day they will be greeted by Jesus himself and ushered into heaven. It's important to realize concerning false teachers because they are very sophisticated today and some of them are some of the most popular speakers in the United States today. Not all, you have so many wonderful teachers and prophets in the body of Christ today, but some of, have a popularity that they don't deserve. The thing about the seductiveness of false teachers is you have to not only listen to what they say, but also listen to what they don't say and what they leave out and what they fail to inform people of that is vital for their salvation, their relationship with the Lord. 
And you have lots of people that want to accentuate only the positive. You can't talk about these subjects. I never address this particular subject, all of these things. And when you listen to them, you say, everything that they say is true. I can't put my finger on it, but it does not sit right in my spirit until you realize that so often a false teacher is identified not merely by air that they speak, but by the truth that they fail to speak, that God intends all of us to hear. Now, they will also, we're told in verse 2, cause non-Christians as a result to view Christianity with contempt. In other words, these kind of teachers produce these sexually immoral and sin-practicing Christians, and what happens then is People in this country have got enough people who are, are not yet Christians, but they've been raised around it, and they know what a Christian ought to be. And so when they see someone claiming to be a Christian and they're not walking the talk, they look at it, and it gives them a reason to look at Christianity with contempt or, or to blaspheme it. But there's something worse than that. And that's in other parts of the world and increasingly in the United States where you have fewer and fewer people who are exposed to Christianity and growing up. And that is when a person of this ilk declares themselves to be a Christian and here is a person that knows nothing about Christianity but they believe that this person says that they're a Christian and that they're getting a, a good representation of what Christianity is all about and they see that the God of the Bible, Jesus Christ, produces that kind of a life, that kind of a human being, that kind of sinful practice and then what it causes them to do is to blaspheme Christianity and not want anything to do with it. The fact of the matter is every Christian is an advert is an advertisement for Christianity, whether a good one or a bad one. And, and so these, these false teachers and their disciples, a very bad advertisement of, of the life of Christ. And so the other way to identify a false teacher, not only false things coming out of their mouth, but also that they will preach one thing and live an entirely different life person needs to teach the Word of God and then back it up with a holy life. And then we notice in verse 3 the impure motives of these false teachers. By covetousness, they exploit people with deceptive words. And you get to the bottom of the motivation as God is able to see the motivations. If you're not, listen, if you're not into this thing and doing this thing because you love God and you love people and you want people to know the truth, well, you've got some other motive. And you're not going to do this without some kind of gain. And it's going to be money, it's going to be power, it's going to be prestige, but it's going to be something. And so a false teacher is in this thing for a completely different motivation. And Peter says it's covetousness at its core in order to enrich themselves in some way, either their egos or their pockets or whatever it might be. And Peter addresses this more fully later in the chapter. And I close then with this point to give some of you hope. He, he closes in verse 3 by again reminding us of the destiny of false prophets. They're headed for judgment, so don't follow them there. You follow a false teacher. We're not just going to be led into an inferior quality of life in this life as a result of it. That would be bad enough. But the greater consequence is 
is if we fall prey to them and follow them, we follow them then into the judgment that, that their teaching and, uh, deserves and the judgment that is due their followers who then engage in that. And the fact of the matter is that just because God hasn't judged them yet doesn't mean that He won't. Peter says God's judgment isn't asleep. He, he sees it all, and His judgment is right on time, and it will come Nobody's getting away with anything. And so for those of us who are Christians here this morning, say, so what's our protection in the midst of all of this? Knowing our Bible well, so we can test all things by the Word of God and then embrace, hold fast that which is good. And then our other protection is the Holy Spirit in our lives. Sometimes you have people, they're brand new Christians, and we can, those of us who've walked with the Lord for a while, we can remember when we were brand new Christians. We didn't even know, hardly know the Bible. We probably pray to any kind of nonsense anyone would come up to say to us, and, and yet here we are walking in the truth now decades later in some of our lives, what protected us in those early months and continues to protect us, the person of the Holy Spirit, where someone comes and they say something to us, and the Holy Spirit living inside of us will not let it sit right. And so often you'll hear a new Christian say, you know, Pastor, so-and-so came to me and they told me this, and I couldn't find in the Bible why it wasn't true, but it just didn't sit right with me. And that's the ministry of the Holy Spirit protecting us related to these things. Those of you who are here today and you're not yet Christians, the really big issue for you and the one that you cannot afford to be deceived on is salvation and everlasting life. I have done everything this morning except put you in a headlock to get you saved today. I have risked more than you know in order to say what I've said to you today so you could hear the truth and make a decision based upon the truth. Are you born again? Do you have your own personal relationship with Jesus Christ as a result of putting your trust in Him? And if you're not born again, I don't want to fight with anybody. I don't want to fight with religious institutions. I don't want to fight with a single individual. All I want is for you to know the truth about how to be saved and then to be saved if you want to. I can live and die with that. There are going to be pastors and other men and women up in front after this service who would love to answer your questions and pray with you to put your faith in Jesus, receive everlasting life, have the confidence of heaven after this life, and to enjoy the greatest life a person can live in this life. And it's all there for the asking and the receiving. And they'd love to pray with you to receive that salvation today, give you a Bible and some other literature to help you get started in your walk, take advantage of the opportunity. That's the truth from Jesus. Take him up on his offer. He'll be faithful to you as he's been faithful to so many of us in this room. Let's stand together and we'll pray. Father, we thank you for a Savior. <laughs> we thank you that you were willing to provide us with one. And then to provide us with one like Jesus 
we pinch ourselves. Thank you for the life that is ours because of him. We give you all of the praise and the honor and the glory this morning for that. And we do so in his name, in Jesus' name, amen. We will look to finish the book of Job tonight. And